Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I've got a really special one. I'm talking to Ken Ramirez. Ken is an absolute living legend, considered by most to be one of the best animal trainers of all time. A really good example of that 10,000 hour rule, that idea that it takes 10,000 hours to master a subject. Well, I think Ken has easily put in his 10,000 hours and that really shows in his mastery of the subject from both a theoretical standpoint and also his practical ability. Ken has been talking talking to (laughs) ken has been training animals for over 40 years 26 of those years were spent at chicago's shed aquarium so this isn't someone that's just trained dogs he's trained all kinds of animals since 2014 he's been the executive vice president and chief training officer at karen Pryor clicker training this is a really fun one i was a little bit overwhelmed to be talking to ken because he's certainly one of my heroes certainly one of the best in the industry and uh, yes, yeah, so it's super exciting to be talking to him. Um, and I won't take up too much of your time. Let's just get into it. So listening to your podcast with Hannah Brannigan, where you were talking about starting out as working on this ranch, I was wondering how... You went. You how you undertook that journey from starting off on a ranch to being considered by most people to be one of the best animal trainers in the world. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that, but I certainly my my journey to being an animal trainer is not a conventional one, and I I, I don't even know if there really is a a truly conventional pathway as someone who has often uh, helped high school students and college students plan out their career, the reality is there is no direct path to becoming an animal trainer. There are a lot of different ways you can get here. And for me, I certainly took a very unusual route. I did grow up on a ranch in southern New Mexico where I was exposed to uh, cattle and horses and sheep and chickens, and we had dogs that helped herd the cattle. And Growing up on that ranch, I probably at the time, at that young age, took animals being in my life for granted. I didn't realize that not everybody lived that way. Um, It wasn't until later in my life as uh, I moved away from the ranch and uh, uh, was, was doing a variety of other things that I realized I missed being around animals. And I began volunteering my time. Um... Uh, at a guide dog organization. And so that's where I first really became exposed to formal or professional training was as a high school student, uh, as a volunteer at a guide dog organization where I helped prepare dog food, I cleaned kennels, and I truly didn't see the dogs very much at that time. But after doing that job for about a year, I was uh, I got the opportunity to become a groom, and uh, that was a paid position. I remember it well because I was being paid twenty-five cents an hour. Oh wow! <laughs> and for and for that uh, marvelous sum of twenty-five cents an hour, I uh, 
I still cleaned kennels and prepared dog food, but I actually had the responsibility of taking care of the dogs outside of training sessions where I would walk them and run them and play with them and and just generally get to interact with the dogs on a on a daily basis, which I which was just marvelous. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, guide dogs are often already very well socialized. They enjoy interacting with people, and uh, their playtime is something that is a is a real important part of their of their development and a big part of their reinforcement. And then by the third year uh, of being at the guide dog organization, I actually got promoted to a minimum wage job as a youth handler. And what that meant was that I got to actually work with the professional trainers and prepare dogs who were going to be handled by young people. And I wasn't a trainer per se, but I was doing the training because the professional trainer would be standing beside me saying, hold the leash this way, say this, do this, turn right, do do whatever. And so in essence, I was just the the body doing what the trainer was telling me to do. But I, I, I was fascinated by that. And by the time I headed off to, to go to college and go to university, I was um, fascinated by animal behavior. And at the time, I thought, I want to be a guide dog trainer. I mean, what better job is in the world could there possibly be than playing with dogs all day long, but doing it for a noble purpose and a noble cause? And so very idealistically, I said, that's what I want to do. I'm going to be a guide dog trainer. But as circumstances often are for, for young people in college, I, I did a lot of different things, went in a, a million different directions, did a lot of volunteer work with animals, but I also did other things, had other odd jobs. And I was about a semester, I had a semester of, of college left when I saw a, a, an announcement for a, uh, uh, an education specialist at a marine life park on Galveston Island in Texas. And uh, I was on summer break and thought, oh, that would be great being on an island uh, by the beach, outdoors for the summer, my last summer before graduating from college. Uh, and it was an education specialist at a marine life park. And so I took that job. And my main role there was to help teach children's classes and to narrate some of the exotic animal shows. They had a, uh, a bird show and a reptile show and a dolphin show. And so I started working there and began to realize that so much of what I'd learned about dog training applied to what they were doing with the animals at this marine life park. And I was fascinated by it. And so I started hanging out with the dolphin trainers. I would spend my lunches and my breaks uh, helping there. They also were, were part of a stranding network that took care of of stranded and rehabilitated dolphins that might wash up onto a beach. And I volunteered my time there. And so I got to know the animal care staff really well. And many of the animal care staff kept commenting on the fact that I had a really good training knowledge. And they were surprised at how good my training knowledge was. And I told them about what I had been doing. And I got along well with the staff. I got to know the supervisors. And at the end of that summer, there, the, the supervisor, the curator of the department, told me that they had an opening for an entry-level dolphin trainer. Was I interested? 
And I had never considered it before, but I thought, well, sure, I might, maybe I could do that for a, for a, a little bit of time uh, before going to train guide dogs. And at the time, he says to me, the only caveat is that we require all of our um, trainers to have biology or marine biology degrees. And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a behavior analyst. I'm studying animal behavior. And he goes, yeah, well, that's not a degree that we're looking for. And, and, and I said, well, I'm, I, I, I don't know what to, what to tell you. I, so does that mean I'm not, a, I'm not a good candidate for this job? And he goes, no, we think you're a great candidate for the job. We just are suggesting that you might need to switch your major. And if you would switch majors, we'll give you the job. And I said, but I'm almost done. I have one semester of school left. And at that point in my life, I, I was a good student, but I didn't love going to school. I was eager to graduate, and I only had one semester of school left. And, and I said, but I'm going to graduate next year. If I change majors, I'll have to be in school for several more years. And, uh, and he says, I totally understand. We can, we can certainly give the job to somebody else. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me if I, if I just switch my major, you'll give me this job? And he goes, well, yeah, but you have to stay in school. Uh, we'll have you work a five-day week, and we'll work it around your school schedule, so you'll have to take classes like on Tuesday and Thursdays, and then you'll work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I thought, well, I could give that a try. And so I decided to take that job on, and... Um, at the time, I still thought I would probably just do that for a year or two and then look for my job working with guide dogs. But I really found that working in the zoological community opened my eyes to training in a much bigger way. I ended up having the opportunity while working at this organization to work with birds of prey, with, uh, with, with citizens like cockatoos and parrots. I worked with primates. I got to work with big cats. I got to work with marine mammals. And so my exposure to a wide variety of species just was sort of, it was everywhere. And I was learning all of these things about all these different species as was finding that so much of what I had learned in working with uh, uh, guide dogs was the same thing that they were doing here. And, uh, and more importantly, what I learned was that there was a lot of positive reinforcement. In fact, most of the focus of the training in, uh, in the zoo world at the time was positive reinforcement training. And, and I, was, I marveled at that because when I worked with guide dogs back then, while we used a lot of positive reinforcement, there was also a lot of traditional uh, punishment. There was corrections for impulse control. You know, There was a lot of concern in the guide dog community that the dog would would uh, would take a blind person and go chasing after a squirrel or do something like that. And, and so they would often use punishment to try to keep animals from doing those kinds of behaviors. And I was fascinated by the fact that in all of my exposure to the work going on in the, in the, in the zoological field, I never saw somebody punish any I never saw any punishment being used and I was surprised by that and I remember at that time being a very young new to the field trainer 
I mistakenly assumed that it must be the difference between exotic and domestic animals. I foolishly thought at that time, well, I guess you don't need punishment with exotic animals, but you, you have to use it with domestic animals. And, and it wasn't until probably two or three years later in my career working in the zoo world at a point when I had worked with you know, probably two dozen different species and realized that none of these species required the use of punishers that I said to myself, well, this has got to be able to work with dogs as well. And I really began that revelation in my own head was that, that there was a whole world of training with, with domestic animals that maybe the world wasn't aware of. Well, of course, the world was aware of it. I just had not become aware of the fact that there were people in the community like Karen Pryor and others that were blazing the way at using positive reinforcement in the domestic animal world. Um, and it was at that time that I really began studying again and reading everything I could get my hands on. But over the course of that time period, uh, as a young trainer, I took advantage of the fact that I had no family ties anywhere, and I traveled and took jobs in Mexico City. I took a job in French Polynesia. I took a job in Japan. And so I got the opportunity to work with really cool, creative trainers from all over the world at these other locations. I had the opportunity to work with lots of different animals. And I think for me, it sort of paved the way for me to become a consultant because in my early exposure to so many different species of animals and working in so many different cultures and working in so many different types of training atmospheres, I became very aware. I think I learned to be flexible. I learned that there isn't just one way to do something. And uh, that really helped me in my career. And so as I traveled around from place to place, I just began gaining more and more and more experience. And I have been a lifelong learner. I have never, ever been at a point in my career where I felt I had seen it all or learned it all. I think I learned it earlier than most. I think we all go through phases in our careers where we feel like, oh, I kind of got it all down now. I've learned it. And then there's this humbling experience that happens in many of our lives where we go, oh, wow, maybe I don't know it all. Maybe there is more out there. And I think I probably went through that phase briefly. But because I kept moving to new facilities and working in new locations with new animals, I very early in my career became aware, wow, there's a big world out here. There's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that I will never know. And I think that just sparked my appetite to want to keep reading, keep going to conferences, keep, uh, you know, finding more and more and more. And I began trying to weave the connections between, you know, working with an eagle and working with a dog and working with a dolphin and working with a tiger and realizing that while each of those species is unique, the food they eat is different, the behaviors they do are different, the laws of learning are exactly the same. And that fascinated me. And I became very, very uh, interested in learning even more about the science. Although I had studied uh, behavior in college, 
I don't know that I was as fascinated with the science as I became later. And so I went back and revisited it again because I realized how helpful it was going to be and me learning to be a better trainer and learning to be a better consultant. And, uh, and so that's what sort of led me on this wild journey. And uh, I, I have worked, as I said, in in five, I mean, lived and worked in five different countries. I've consulted in a lot of different places, and I've been very fortunate that my career has allowed me to come full circle. Started off wanting to work with guide dogs for the blind, went down the zoological path, but then almost 20 years ago, I got involved in the dog training world again through the search and rescue community. Uh, I started teaching a course at... Uh, at Western Illinois University on animal training. And one of my very first students was a uh, fire marshal in Illinois who was the head of a search and rescue team. And he always was fascinated with asking if some of these positive reinforcement techniques would work with search and rescue dogs. And although I'd never worked with search and rescue dogs, I at that time was confident enough to say, yeah, of course it will. And that got, got me to uh, starting to work in the search and rescue community which then led me to working in the, in the law enforcement world and started doing work with Homeland Security and with other law enforcement agencies. And that got the attention of several guide dog organizations. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm now consulting with several guide dog organizations. And I finally was back working with guide dogs just like I thought I would do <laughs> when I was a high school kid. But it just took me 30 years Ken, to get there. You, and, you uh, said you went full circle. And that kind of... Um, and, I, and I thought that as you were speaking because I know that now you've set up this uh, Karen Pryor ranch where you're giving courses and stuff. And of course, when you started this whole journey, it was you know, initially from working on a ranch. So I'm wondering if that's a deliberate move or just, again, just one of those things that is how it's worked out. Well, I think, I think it's, it's, I don't know that I consciously said I began my, my, in my youth, I began by living on a ranch and working on a ranch. So let me, let me come full circle and do that again. <laughs> but I, but I definitely, as I, as I took over the reins of Karen Pryor Clicker Training and the Karen Pryor Academy when Karen decided that she wanted to retire, I realized that leaving my role at the time that she asked me to take over for her, I was at the Shedd Aquarium where I was overseeing the, the care and training of 32,000 animals. Um, I thought to myself, I really believe in the mission of Karen Pryor Academy. I love the fact that we are trying to educate people about positive reinforcement training. But if I leave the aquarium, I will no longer have this huge population of animals to take care of anymore. And I love the hands-on part. I love taking care of animals and teaching animals and training animals. And, and while I, I recognize that where I can do the most good is in by teaching people, I still wanted to be able to have my hand in working with animals. And so as I thought about that, I realized that if I came over and, and, and started working uh, with Karen Pryor Clicker Training and the Karen Pryor Academy, that maybe I could start teaching many of the classes that I teach all over the world because as a, I travel and do seminars and things like that. But maybe I could have my own facility where I could have a few animals and I could teach classes, people could get to work with the animals. And as I started thinking about what kind of animals would make the most sense, 
it ended up being farm animals and ranch animals that were going to be the easiest to take care of. I began to realize that the largest population of animals on this earth are farm and ranch animals. And interestingly enough, most people don't think too much about training them. And I thought, well, this is sort of an untapped area where we could learn a lot about you know, training cattle and training horses and training sheep and training chickens and donkeys. And it's not that people haven't trained those animals. Of course they have. But I, it was an area that I thought could do a lot of, there could be a lot of ways to explore that. And then I thought, well, gee, let me set up a learning environment. Let me set up a place where I can have a classroom and a place where I can train myself, a place where students can come and learn. And thus, the idea of the ranch was born. And uh, Karen Pryor and the organization was behind that. And so it has become the, the Karen Pryor National Training Center. And we've set up classes and every month we do these week-long classes where people can sit down in the classroom and have lectures and then go out in the field and work with a donkey or a goat or an alpaca and get that hands-on experience. And so it, it just sort of materialized. And I certainly think that the fact that I call it the ranch is because I grew up on a ranch. I feel comfortable on a ranch. And so there was something very comfortable about this environment. It was something I knew how to do. It was something I was familiar with. I never thought I would come back to that again, but but that's what I'm doing now, and uh, I'm loving it. It's interesting that you've developed a real love for the hands-on stuff, because I know that you started your career with the guide dogs quite hands-off. So I was wondering how you developed the practical skills that you have now. Well, I think the the practical skills really came from doing it myself for so long. Um, You know... I really was fortunate that when I was working in high school with guide dogs, um, I had professional trainers that were really telling me what to do. They were the brains and I was just doing it. But I was very aware of what I was doing and was a very inquisitive kid and would say, why and how come and why does this work? Um, And I also, as I learned about animal training, realized that as I grew up on a ranch, I I realized that those animals were learning all the time, even though we didn't think we were training them. I became very quickly able to put two and two together and go, oh, so that's why the cows did this. And oh, that's why the horses responded this way. They were learning. Uh, And so then when I got my first uh, job in the uh, exotic animal world, it was literally throw you in the water, sink or swim. I was thrust into an environment where I was training every day. I was working with tigers. I was working with birds. I was working with dolphins. And I was surrounded by these exceptional trainers. And every day that I would work, I would get to train. But then I was working with people that I could say, and why is it that we do it this way? And what would happen if we did it a different way? And what happens this way? And why do we reinforce like this? And why is this called this? And I was definitely a very inquisitive young employee and loved what I was doing and really saw it as this great opportunity. So I was working with dozens and dozens of animals every day. And that that first, probably the first 10 years of my career in the zoo world, I I I had a few responsibilities such as, you know, administrative or supervisor responsibilities toward the end of that 10-year early part of my career. But for the most part, I was just a hands-on, front-line trainer, and that's what I did 
all day long. Either maintain behavior with animals that were already well-trained or train new behaviors with naive animals. And so I had an opportunity that very few people get. And one of the things I really learned from that was there is a real advantage to being able to handle and manage and maintain behavior that others have already trained. So in many cases, I would step into a program that might have a dolphin that I would work with that had been trained to do over three or 400 behaviors. I just learned the cues and learned how to reinforce them. I didn't train those, those early behaviors, but I got to see the marvel of how many things an animal could do. Meanwhile, on that very same day, there would be another group of animals that had never been trained before, and I was being given the opportunity to go out and train. And sometimes I'd make mistakes, sometimes I'd be successful, but I was surrounded by a lot of good mentors who could tell me when I did well and when I didn't, uh, could answer questions of why things worked the way they did. And, and, and then, somewhere in the middle of all that time, I began to look, go back to the literature and began looking up the science and reading articles and joining organizations and reading books to better understand how my early college learnings tied to what I was seeing happen. And so when I think of a lot of the young trainers coming up in the field today, very few people get the opportunities I had to work with such a large number of well-trained animals as well as work with a large number of naive animals and get to work with those animals every single day. So my exposure, you know, the number of animals that I've had the opportunity to train in the first 10 years of my career is astronomical. Most people will never work with that many animals or train that many animals in their entire life. Uh, but I was just working in situations that exposed me to a lot. And I loved working. So I often would work on my days off. I'd work overtime. I just enjoyed it so much that I, I would cram two people's lifetimes, two people's life into each day. I, you know, I might put that many hours in where the amount of exposure I was getting to animal training was just really huge. How many hours? And the more I how did many hours it, would you say you spent in a day training animals? I would say uh, it, it, I'm going to break it down so that I can come up with that answer easily. In a typical job, in a typical day, the typical day was met, say, an eight-hour day. I would say in that eight-hour day. Um, Two hours was usually spent doing food preparation, and another hour was usually spent doing cleaning, and another hour was probably spent doing a variety of other record-keeping and other chores. And the rest of the day was actually hands-on with animals. So in a typical eight-hour day, it would be four hours per day of training. But because I put in overtime and took on double shifts, in many cases, I was working 80 to 90 hours a day, I mean, a week. <laughs> and so, in a, not in a day, uh, but in, so instead of a, an eight hour uh, a day, I would put in a 16 or 17 or 18 hour day. And since all the food prep and cleaning were already done, those additional eight hours, I would say six of those eight, eight hours were training. So that would mean. I was hands-on training or maintaining behavior nine to ten hours a day, probably an average of six 
days a week. So that's mind blowing. You know, most people, if it is mind blowing, because I think about today, what I'm doing today on the ranch and with everything else that I've got going on uh, today, for example, I bet that if I'm lucky, I might get 90 minutes of training in today. I, I, I may, I may, I, I may even get two hours of training in today. But today is a week. Today that I, that the day I'm talking to you happens to be a weekend when I don't have any office meetings. I don't have any other things, and I still might only put in two hours of actual training time, um, and for this entire week, um, I might average an hour of training on most days so this week i might put in six or seven hours of actual hands-on training time and back then i would do i would do more than that in a single day and so and i was and that was with lots and lots of different species um yeah i just sorry it's taking me a second that's crazy one of the problems i've found with with trying to really master animal training because i i'm quite interested in this topic of mastery and you know say that you wanted to master playing the violin where you could sit there all day and play the violin but when you have a limited number of animals there's kind of like a point where it's like can i continue to you know say that you're you're sat at home you have one dog you know you can't train them for eight hours a day (laughs) So that's one of the challenges I think with this profession is getting that practice in. Absolutely, I think there are ways to enhance and, and up the practice, and I think that if you really are dedicated to making and can make training fun, as most of us try to do, you might, with a single dog, be able to to get to a point where you could train theoretically for. A couple hours a day but that's pushing it and it's the same animal and so there is a limit to the behavioral repertoire that that animal will give you or the challenges that they will give you and oftentimes when you've done a good job of training your one dog at home they hopefully don't give you too many problem behaviors to worry about or too many challenges to deal with and so you're not really challenged the way you are if you are a consultant who is dealing with everybody else's problems on a regular basis or when I worked in the zoological environment where we might have, you know, 30,000 animals on property and, you know, two or three dozen of them had a behavioral issue that needed to be worked on. So you were constantly problem solving and trying out different behavioral resolutions because although most of the animals were perfectly well behaved when you have that many animals you're going to have some behavioral problems and so it's that exposure at such a high level and at such a high number that really allowed me at an early age to practice more than most people ever could because I had access to so many different kinds of animals. And that made made a huge difference. Do you think that an animal's ability to train for duration can be increased through practice? Or is it a case of a fixed amount, if that makes sense? No, I, I absolutely find that as animals learn... And as the relationship with that animal grows, um, and the more creative you can be about making the sessions fun, um, I think an animal can really, the, their ability to work for longer periods of time is, is quite amazing to me. Because I, I, 
I think I actually know this to be a fact how whenever I show people that I'm working with my dog for 45 minutes at a time, people will, will often go, 45 minutes? How can the dog work for that long? And I realized, oh, well, you know what? It didn't start that way. You know, when the dog was young, I worked with the dog for a minute or two at a time. And But as I was able to find new reinforcers so that the only reinforcers weren't just food and it wasn't just chasing a tennis ball and it wasn't just I, I could expand the repertoire, I found that a lot of my dogs love to work. They don't want to stop. And if you're able to really vary the types of reinforcers you use so that it's not all food-based because then your animals satiate and it's not all chasing a tennis ball because then the animals tire out. Um, it's a variety of different types of reinforcers. Then you find that these animals can be motivated to work for really, really, really long durations of time and they don't wear out and they don't get tired. And now don't get me wrong. I don't work most of my animals for an hour at a time all the time. But there are times when I'm able to do that and I'm able to work with them for longer periods of time because they are just so engaged and enjoying it so much. And so I do think that when you, when an animal has gained experience, when an animal uh, has a better relationship with its trainer, and when you have a wide variety of reinforcers and a wide behavioral repertoire, the animal's attention span and ability to work can be quite lengthy can be much longer than most people realize is that without breaks ken and also is that something that you systematically do uh, it's not without breaks but it's how can i best put it um it's but it's a break in the type of activity so if for example i'm working with my dog on a recall and I'm having him run somewhere to retrieve something and I spend five or ten minutes of high energy, high level activity, then my next my next ten minutes is going to be, well, let's just walk quietly in this direction, but I want to work on your heel or I want to work on on a couple of other things and then I'm going to direct you over to the water bowl and and I'll point you to the water bowl and if you want to drink for a couple of minutes you can and then maybe I'll sit there and do some tactile work just uh, some in place paw work and tail work and stomach work and where with most of my animals I like to prepare them for any kind of medical exam that might be necessary and so we'll sit there in a very relaxed way and I'll manipulate their ears and spread apart the toes and manipulate the tail and the animal's not really working hard they're just allowing me to manipulate their body and then I of course reinforce them for that and then I might move on to something else and so when I'm done with all of these various activities, it could easily be 45 minutes, but I wasn't doing any one thing for 45 minutes straight. I might have done 10 minutes of high energy behavior, I might have done five minutes of, of very low energy behavior, and then I might do another 10 minutes of high mental activity, and then I might move back to a high energy uh, physical type of activity. And so I do think it's something that uh, there are breaks, but there aren't necessarily uh, – it isn't th that we – the animal is still engaged and still under what we used to call – what we might call stimulus control. He's still focused and paying attention. And then um, – and, of course, you approximate up to that. You get to that point where you can – keep their keep their attention and do more with them for longer periods of time and and uh and that is something that you gradually 
get to get to that level. But I don't do that every day. I wouldn't work with one of my dogs for 45 minutes straight every single day, but there might be times when that becomes necessary. And I think I learned that a lot by working in the working dog world, where sometimes when I'm working with a bomb detection dog or a search and rescue dog, that dog might be out doing a 30 to 45 minute search before we give them a break. Um, and uh, a guide dog might be engaged on, on, on duty for hours. Now, when they're on duty, they, got, they guide the, their, their blind handler to the restaurant. Then when they get to the restaurant, they get a chance to rest, but they can't go out in the street and play. They're still sort of on duty. They're just at ease, but they're still actively working. And sometimes that can go on for a very, very long period of time. But there are interruptions in the activities and you build the animals up to that. But I'm sure that some of where I learned about that was by working with dogs in a working environment and realizing that sometimes they do work a really long time. And one of the ways that you're successful at getting them to work a really long time is by making it fun, by having variety of reinforcers by really engaging them um, in unique and different activities and not making it too monotonous when you when we start talking about working dogs for long periods of time one of the things that comes to mind for a lot of people is this idea of keep going signals which i know is like uh seems more common in in use with more exotic animals but i think sometimes with dog trainers we think or we try to apply keep going signals for behaviors that might last 30 seconds to a minute. And I wonder if that's how they were intended to be used. Well, that's interesting that you should ask about keep going signals. It's something that I have done a lot of studying on because I was asked years ago to write a paper on keep going signals. And I, um, as I really went out there and looked at the literature, here's the interesting thing about the keep going signal. It doesn't exist in the scientific literature, but it is very common in the popular literature. And what you find is that there's a lot of different ways that people use them. Um, the One of the common uses is the kind of thing that you might do with a guide dog, for example, not a guide dog, a uh, uh, although that's where I first heard about it was with guide dog work. But I see it a lot used in search and rescue work where a dog is out doing a, a fantastic job at get, keeping his nose to the ground and searching and sniffing things out. And he hasn't found what, what he's looking for. And 15 minutes or 20 minutes into the search, the handler, the trainer, will yell out some words of encouragement saying, you're doing a good job, boy. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up, girl. You're doing great. And if you ask the handler why they did that, is they they say, well, I wanted to reinforce my dog. I wanted my dog to know he was doing good and to keep going. And uh, But I didn't want him to come back to get reinforcement, but I didn't want him to be discouraged either. And so you tend to find people use these those kinds of keep going signals in, in situations where their animals are doing very, very long duration behaviors. I see it in the guide dog world. I see it in the search and rescue world. In the zoological community, I see it when an animal's being trained for a long medical behavior, like an animal's being asked to be still for 10 minutes for an ultrasound exam or something of that kind. And throughout the procedure, every couple of minutes, the trainer might reach down and pet the animal and say, you're doing good, girl, keep it up. And their goal is to let the animal know, hey, I didn't forget you. You're doing a great job. Keep going and you'll get reinforced. When you look at the scientific literature, 
The keep going signal when used as I just described it is actually a tertiary reinforcer. Um, it, and an all a tertiary reinforcer is, is that it's one step further removed from the primary reinforcer. For trainers who use a clicker, for example, a clicker is a secondary reinforcer. It's a, it's you know it's a step removed from the primary, and a tertiary reinforcer is just another step removed from that. So, the keep going signal is a promise that a click is coming, and a click is a promise that food is coming. And the best example of tertiary reinforcers in our world is in the old days when many of us got paid with a paycheck. That paycheck is a tertiary reinforcer. We take it to the bank and cash it in for money, but that money is only a secondary reinforcer because really it's just a piece of paper that we then take to the store and trade it in for our food or pay our rent or pay for our entertainment. And so all that a, that, that kind of a keep going signal is, is just a another step removed from the primary reinforcer. And so that's why it's technically called a tertiary reinforcer. But that's just one kind of keep going signal. But I do think there's a, there's a lot of debate in the community as to whether those are worthwhile. Because some trainers would say, well, it seems to me that you just need to train longer duration. If what, if, if what you're doing it for is to keep the animal motivated, uh, you just haven't spent enough time training duration. And I suppose you could look at it that way. But I also look at it from the standpoint of when I have an animal who's involved in a 45-minute task, what does it hurt to throw a couple pieces of encouragement at them once in a while to let them know that they're doing, doing well? And so I don't necessarily think – I mean there are some very high trainers who look at it from a very haughty perspective and go, well, you're not a very good trainer if you can't train 45-minute duration. And I think to myself, well, I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know that it's a bad thing to occasionally toss in a little encouragement, and if that keeps the animal going and reinforces the animal for what they've done so far, okay. However, one of the other arguments against the keep going signal is that, that, that it can create problems. Um, if you're not careful, if you always use the keep going signal at the exact same point all the time, your animal can come, become so dependent on it that if you don't do the keep going signal, the animal will quit performing, in which case the keep going signal, instead of actually re just reinforcing previous behavior, has now become the cue for the second half of the behavior. And if you don't give the cue for the last half of the behavior, the animal won't continue performing it. And that can often be a problem. Um, and so there's lots of debate about it. And then, then there are other types of keep going signals out there that aren't at all like I just described. Bob Bailey talks about a keep going signal that he used in military work in, in Europe that is uh, designed as a, as a guidance system to, to guide animals from place to place. So, and, the, and so the challenge of talking about keep going signals is because there is no scientific definition, anybody can come up with a definition of a keep going signal and you can't really say they're wrong since there isn't a technical definition for one. So, but, but they were made for really long form behaviors, like 45 minutes, 20 minutes, etc. I think sometimes people become, can yes. start to use them maybe too early, especially with like stay training with dogs. That's what, Absolutely. Yeah, that's what comes to mind. And then, 
like you get that problem like you were saying about the dog starting to become reliant on it yes and it's exactly the same thing instead of a 45 minute behavior someone decides that for my one minute sit stay or my one minute down stay i'm going to give my dog a keep going signal at the 20 second mark and then again at the 50 second mark and um and that's where I think some people's perception of, well, gee, you just didn't really train duration very well. You should have been able to get a one-minute duration. And I would agree, you should have been able to. But who's to say it's wrong? You know, if, if it helps your dog get, it, get the task done, um, it's not necessarily bad. But it can be problematic if your dog becomes dependent on it and won't do the behavior unless you're coaching them through it by giving them that extra piece of encouragement. But for me, the bottom line on is this a good idea or a bad idea, is looking at the end result. You know, what is it you need from your animal? And are you happy with the way they're delivering that behavior? And if you're happy, then whatever you're doing must be okay. But if you're not happy, then you better look at what you're doing and change something. Can you give us some examples of some of the behaviors that you've taught, either with or without keep going signals, for long durations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the three or four best examples I think I sort of alluded to already. One of them is medical behaviors with, uh, with animals, where um, uh, an animal is, is, needs to stay in a position for a fairly long period of time. Uh, blood sampling is a good example of where there's a needle in an animal's vein, and if the stick is not an arterial stick and the stick is slow, an animal might need to stay in that position for four or five minutes. And then I've seen for, for behaviors like ultrasound for certain types of animals, um, getting an animal into an ultrasound position, uh, I have seen veterinarians where in their effort to try to look at a fetus or look at some particular internal organ might require... 10, 12, 14 minutes of duration for an animal to stay still. And that's a, that's a long time for an animal to not move. And so that's one example. Another is um, uh, search and rescue work. When we have an, a dog go out and give them the cue to go find it, um, they begin that search. And even in the best of cases, it can take 10 to 12 to 14, 15 minutes to find uh, a victim but in many cases, when I, when I was working in, at Hurricane Katrina, uh, we sometimes would be on a search and we would go an hour and not find something. And, and, and so there was, no, there was no end and we had to find ways of keeping the animals motivated. We had to find ways of interrupting the behavior and bringing them back and reinforcing for just a good effort, uh, which is normally not something you normally would do. You only reinforce for a completion of the behavior. But in many cases, for some of this real-world work, or oftentimes with explosive detection dogs, we may be having them search an entire football stadium. And that can take hours. And we will stop and reinforce along the way. But often they may go 30 or 45 minutes without uh, without a, a break and you want to be able to let them know they're doing well and so sometimes a keep going signal might be advantageous for some animals in those really long duration searches what was it like working search and rescue in a situation like hurricane katrina and how did you get involved with that well that was my first i have i've been uh able to be involved in a number of pretty 
uh, high-profile searches, and that was because one of my, when I first started teaching my course on animal training at Western Illinois University, uh, one of my first students was a uh, captain of a search and rescue team in Illinois, and he became so fascinated with the use of positive reinforcement that um, he invited me to join his team. He had two puppies that he was bringing in from Europe, and he wanted me to train one of them, and he would train the other one. He would teach me everything he could about search and rescue if I would teach him everything I could about using positive reinforcement. And so together, we worked with these two dogs and developed them into exceptional search and rescue dogs. And we got called in on a lot of tornado devastation throughout the Midwest. Uh, and then when big events came up, such as Hurricane Katrina, such as uh, 9-11 in the World Trade Center, uh, such as an earthquake that took place in, in, in Mexico City, all were, t- were during my time where I was actively working with, with Bill as a search and rescue dog trainer. Uh, so me and my dog team, we had... Uh, uh, a FEMA certification. We got called in because we were we ended up becoming a really good team. And when you're in some of those disasters, they are hard. It's depressing. There's a lot of anguish. People are scared. People are frustrated. There is there's emergency vehicles everywhere. Uh, often things smell bad, and your dogs immediately pick up on it. You get into this environment, and it's like nothing you've ever trained for before. Uh, often when you're doing search and rescue work in those kind of environments, you're not the only search and rescue team there. There may be dozens of them. So there's dozens of teams out scouring and looking for people. And there's people, often you find dead people, you find severely injured people, you find uh, there's families hanging around screaming and crying and yelling because they're missing their loved ones. And there's a certain amount of chaos and it's it's a scary environment. I remember when I first got into my first really serious disaster uh, uh, search and rescue, which was with a major set of tornadoes that had torn through a shopping center in uh, in uh, in downstate Illinois, and there were hundreds of people that were missing and presumed inside this shopping center. We had dog teams everywhere. There was emergency vehicles everywhere. And I remember as we drove up onto the scene and I got out before ever taking my dog out of the back of the vehicle, I remember my stomach churning because it just was a scary Everything about it was scary. And I thought to myself, if I am this frightened by all of this chaotic activity, how is my dog going to feel? And then you begin questioning yourself and asking, have I trained my dog sufficiently? Have I desensitized him well enough and generalized him to the fact that because every search and rescue scene is different. There's no way you can ever be prepared for any of them because they're always a different location. And you hope you've done a good job of of getting your animals ready that's a big part of doing good search and rescue work is doing a lot of desensitization in new locations all the time so that your dog gets to that point where they go i know new location no big deal um but there is something about a huge disaster that is a big deal. It is so different because the energy is different the the anguish is high uh and and there's just a lot going on and a lot of distractions. And uh, I, 
I am amazed when I see these dogs work as well as they do. And I realize that a lot of it is because of the training that we did. But I also realize that, uh, that it just shows the resilience that dogs have and, uh, and how capable they are of doing so much if you're able to put the right, right amount of training in on the front end. Are there any stories from your career, either in working with marine animals, search and rescue, or, or any of that that really stand out and kind of would be in your highlight reel? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I, I've had a lot of wonderful highlights in my career and uh, a, a lot of things that I have done that have uh, uh, that really sort of can stand out for me. And I think that uh, in the most recent phase of my career, one of the things that I've done a lot of in the last uh, um, 10 or 15 years has been conservation work. And I will tell you that as I do conservation work, which is taking my training skills and using them with animals in the wild, uh, those experiences are some of the most fascinating because I, I've done some work with polar bears in Alaska and chimpanzees in Sierra Leone. I'm involved in an elephant project right now in, in, uh, in Zambia, I, I did a bilby project in Australia, and these are all projects in which you go out and try to set up uh, uh, a training environment that will set animals in the wild up for success, but teach them something that's going to help in their conservation. And for me, I think working with the locals uh, who live among the animals is often one of the more eye-opening experiences for me because you realize frequently that you're coming in to try to do this good thing or what is perceived to be a good thing by you but oftentimes the locals may not feel that way at all um uh the the example i would give you is back in 1989 i was called up to uh, help with uh, uh rehabilitation of sea otters uh at the exxon valdez oil spill up in alaska and um, I was there because of my handling background and my training background. We thought that skill might come in useful at the rehab center as we're bringing hundreds of otters in that are covered with oil. Uh, we want to clean them up and set them back out into the wild as soon as we can. And so I'm excited to be helping with this event. Uh, it's a disaster at that time, one of the worst oil spills to happen in U.S. waters at that time, and um, I feel like I'm there to do a good job. And I remember when I, every evening, the, the, the Exxon leadership team and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Wildlife leadership team would call a town meeting every evening to tell everybody here's what's happened with the this is where the oil has spread to today these are the beaches that we have cleaned these are the number of of eagles that we have rescued here's the number of 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 beach all these different statistics and i remember i was at the back of the room for my first town hall meeting to hear about all the efforts that were taking place and when they got to the wildlife and they were talking about the number of eagles that had been found dead and the number that were rescued. They got to sea otters. And when they got to the sea otter portion and said, and that's what I was there to do, and they said, we found 225 sea otters dead today. And the entire hall erupted in cheering 
I was going, oh my God, they're happy that these sea otters are dead. And it was at that moment that I realized everybody's perspective on a, on a disaster situation is different. While the townspeople were devastated by this oil spill, the one good thing that had come out of it was that these sea otters were being killed because, for them, sea otters were always stealing fish from their nets. Sea otters were always killing and eating the fish that they were using for their livelihood. So, from their perspective, the death of hundreds of sea otters was the one good thing that had come out of that oil spill. And for me... I was horrified by that, but it was this example, and I've had many examples like this in my career since then, where I realize everybody has a different perspective on something. Issues are not black and white. There's multi-shades multi of gray and multi-shades of, of how people view something. And suddenly I realized while I was walking around town prideful that I was there to, be a, to, to rescue sea otters, I realized later that I had to sort of hide the fact that I was there to help sea otters because nobody in that town would have thought it was a good thing. And, and you realize that everybody views these things so differently. And over the years of doing these kinds of projects, working in different cultures, working in different countries, and working with different species of animals – it's really opened my worldview and realized, gosh, there's a lot of different ways that people see wildlife and how they view them and why they view them the way they do is, can be vastly different. And it was just a sobering, a sobering moment for me. How did you deal with that conflict, Ken? Were like people asking you what you were there for and stuff like that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the entire town was just over it was bulging with visitors because there were all the Exxon Valdez, Exxon officials, there were all these wildlife rehabilitators, there were all these engineers, there were all these people cleaning up beaches. So everybody was doing something with the oil spill. And so you'd go in to have dinner at a, at a restaurant and it was normal for people to say, what are you here working on? And my answer, I learned, was to say, I'm doing wildlife rehabilitation. And people were happy with that because many of them wanted to see the eagles rehabilitated or wanted to see. And so I just didn't mention, if I could avoid it, that I was working with the sea otter too. Okay. So what exactly were you doing with the sea otters? Was that a training task or? Well, it started as a handling task and it became a training task. I went there because... They needed people with expertise at handling these kinds of animals. You know, so often you get volunteers who have never handled an exotic animal before. And so I, my original title at the Exxon Valdez cleanup site was Otter Wrangler. I, <laughs> I, otters, otters would come in covered in oil and they needed somebody to handle the otters while they were being cleaned up and being uh, get the oil taken out of their fur. They needed those of us with expertise handling, and there were eight of us that were otter wranglers. That's all we did. On any given day, I might handle anywhere from 125 to 200 otters a day. And you'd, you'd help restrain them for vaccinations, for medication, for cleaning, for uh, medical exams, etc. But then, as 
I became involved in the Exxon Valdez rehabilitation effort, there were obviously a great number of animals that were injured or orphaned who were not going to be able to be released back into the wild. And so one of the things I became responsible for was becoming up with handling protocols that would help teach the adult otters that were going to be released to, to help all the people uh, learn how to not allow them to habituate to people or get used to people because we wanted them to behave and become wild otters again. So we didn't want them to learn that people are where their, their food came from. We wanted them to, to just remain wild. And on the other hand, we had this smaller group of otters that we knew could not be reintroduced into the wild. And for that particular group, we did put together training protocols that helped teach them how to come over for medical care, how to be tr to, to transfer from one place to another. And so there was one group of animals that we very clearly were training and another group of animals that I helped put protocols in place to teach people how to interact with the otters but not teach them to like people because we wanted them to still be fearful of people when they were going to eventually be released again. And so it was training, it was two separate kinds of training plans, one designed to gain the otter's trust and one designed specifically not to gain their trust and help keep them wild. Oh, that's amazing. Um, uh, just laughing at that because I can just imagine that on your LinkedIn profile, just Otter Wrangler. <laughs> Yes, yes. It was a. It was. It was one of many interesting titles that I've had. I, I mean, uh, I, I think about it, and and I mean that was officially what they called me was an otter wrangler, and uh, it's funny because I I would have never thought of that as a title that I would give myself, but <laughs> you know. So Ken, where can people find out more information about you and the Karen Pryor Academy and the work that you do? Uh, that. If, if people were to go on our website to clickertraining.com, uh, that is the Karen Pryor Clicker Training website. And once you go on that website, you can find out about all sorts of things. There's a place where there's, a, there's information about the consulting we do, and that has a profile on me as I, as I do most of the consulting. Or if people are interested in the ranch, there's a tab that says the ranch, and you can find out about our courses at the ranch. There's another tab that says the academy, and it talks all about the courses we offer at the academy and our our professional dog trainer certification program. We also have our annual conferences that we call Clicker Expo, and we do those three times a year, twice in the U.S. and one it's in Europe each year, and that, that information is on that website as well. So if you go to clickertraining.com, it's probably the best single place to find out about all the different things I'm involved in. Thanks so much, Ken. Well, Nick, thank you so much for having me. Hey, what's up, guys? Before you go, just a few things I'd really like to run over. In the last uh, week or so, I've been experimenting with Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows fans to donate money to the things that they love, from comics, music, podcasts, that kind of thing. It allows people like me that put a lot of time into creating content for people to enjoy to monetize that so that we can continue to do that and continually improve our creations with the funding However, it's better than that. I'm not simply asking you to hand over your money for podcasts like this. When you become a patron, you can also get a bunch of benefits depending on how much you decide to donate. So if you're interested in helping me contribute to this and continue to create these podcasts, 
then head over to patreon.com slash Nick Benger. I also want to give a shout out to Hannah Meeks. Hannah is the first ever patron that I've ever had. So it takes some balls to be the first person to jump into that. So I really appreciate that. The other thing is, as always, there are show notes for this episode so you don't have to look for everything on the internet. If you want to grab those, then go to nickbenger.com slash Ken hyphen Ramirez. I really appreciate you listening, guys. See ya.